This week, uh, this week, Billy Graham died one year short of 100. You may not know this about Billy Graham, but he started off at Bob Jones University, the Bob Jones University. And apparently between Billy and his friend, Wendell Phillips, they managed in their first year to rack up 147 demerits. <laughs> Mr. Graham, you are not respectful in class today. <laughs> Mr. Phillips, you have not submitted your homework. <laughs> 147 demerits, one demerit shy of getting kicked out of Bob Jones University. Apparently, young Billy Graham did not care for the legalism and did not care for the fact that they would actually open and read your mail just to make sure that you were on track with what you're supposed to be doing. So in 1937, before he ended up at Wheaton College, he transferred to the Florida Bible Institute and somebody gave him an opportunity to preach. And of course, when you give a young man or a young woman the opportunity to preach, you give them an opportunity at night, not Sunday morning. And so. Billy Graham's first opportunity was an evening gathering of Christians, and so he stood up and he recited not one, not two, not three, but four sermons that he had memorized from a Moody Press book, and it went thud. It was a bomb, and if you had asked somebody back in 1937, and if you, if you had said, I tell you what, would you put money on this young man that he will become the first pastor in American history because of his faithfulness to the gospel and his preaching, that he would lie in repose in the U.S. Capitol? No one would have taken that money. No one would have taken that bet in 1937. God is constantly doing the unexpected. Uh, that's how it works with the Holy Spirit. And I've learned at age 49 that I cannot control the Holy Spirit. And I can't always predict what the Spirit is going to do in any given situation or any given person's life. Um, when our kids were little, they swam for a swim team up in Lexington. And this swim team, uh, we, you would drive up. And during practice, the parents would sit at round tables that rung the pool deck. Okay, and so there were there were three tables full of LCA parents, and three of them. And then there was a table. There was this new upstart fandangled church. Everybody's excited about it. There was a table with a Quest pastor and all the Quest people at that table. And then there was there was my table, and at my table was the lesbian couple that nobody wanted to talk to. The drunk grandpa who brought his grandson in his golf cart, crash, and we all would, you know, should we call the cops? Well, it's not really a car, you know, <laughs> and he made it here, you know, and then everybody's, oh, we'll take Johnny home, you know, <laughs> and so, and the pastor from Nicholasville. Now, now, if you had asked me, like, what table, where is God going to do the most? I wouldn't have put money on my table for, and you know what? At our table, we were talking about what's real about the universe? Who is God? How do you know? And they were all talking about UK. I mean, you know, it's the weirdest thing. Again, and that's how it is with the Holy Spirit. Um, now, in church, if you lock into church, you're going to find that 
with churches and the way we tend to church our lives, there's this continuum, okay? And on the one end of the continuum is rational and controlled. Our worship services and our church life is the same it's ever been, always been for 2,000 years. I can tell you exactly what's gonna happen next week, thank you very much. I love rational and controlled. And then on the other end of the continuum is, woo, somebody's gonna ride the broom tonight, the Holy Ghost is up, you know, and so there's the continuum. And, and so, now if you're here at Generations because I'm the pastor of this church, you, I just, you need to know this about yourself, you probably skew toward rational and controlled. And here's what I found, that. The Holy Spirit is always about two or three steps this direction from me. And that's just how it is. The Holy Spirit's always two or three steps toward what I think is chaos, what is unexpected, what I can't control, and that's just how it works and with what I'm comfortable. And so here's my bottom line today, okay? Here's, here's the point I'm trying to make. Rationality, rationality isn't enough. Now, I'm a rational Christian. If, if someday somebody found the bones of Jesus and we could prove that that man didn't rise from the dead, I would go, great teacher, but forget this whole Christianity thing. So I, I'm a rational person of faith, but rationality isn't enough. You can't think your way to God. We've got to rely on the Holy Spirit. Only the Spirit can give birth to what is spirit, okay? So if you stick with church any length of time, the Holy Spirit is gonna do things, the Holy Spirit is gonna move in some ways that I'm just gonna tell you are gonna make you feel uncomfortable. It's gonna be awkward, and, and, and you're not gonna be able to control them, okay? So if you brought a paper Bible, I want you to open it to the Gospel of John. We're in John's Gospel, and we're actually gonna look at John chapter three, verses one through 15, all the stuff that leads up to the most famous Bible verse ever that somebody at a football game has plastered on a giant sign. We're gonna look at what comes right before that, okay? So John chapter three. And so let's just get into it. And we're gonna go through this, chunk through this verse by verse. John chapter three, verses one and following. There was a man named Nicodemus, a a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark, one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Who is this Nicodemus? Who is he? Who is this guy that comes under the cloak of darkness to see Jesus? Well, the text tells us one thing right there. He was a Pharisee. Now, if you know anything about the Pharisees, they subscribe to the traditions of the elders. Uh, we tend to think of stuff like that as ideas and doctrine. No, for them, it was all about doing the right things the right way. So they had the right kind of clothing with the talit and all the garb, and they would pray in the prescribed manners, and they would wash their hands the right way. They did all of the right things the right way, and Nicodemus was one of those people. Now, the Pharisees were very popular with the average people, because the average people kinda, you know, they were like, well, I try to live right, but it just never seems to work out, and these guys are godly, so they must be really in with God. And, and so, 
Nicodemus is one of those people, but it also tells us that he was a religious leader, and, and the words used mean he was part of the ruling party. He, in other words, he came from an elite family. He was wealthy and connected. Um, and we know what that's like. Whether you like the current president or not, he has a son, Donald Trump Jr. Everybody wants to be, get, get an audience with Donald Trump Jr. right now because he's connected, right? That's how that works. And Nicodemus belongs to one of these connected families in Judea. Now, there's some people who say that it's possible that he belonged to this family called the Gurion family. It's a Greek name. They go back to the Hashmonean dynasty. They had four different men in the family named Nicodemus. Um, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us if that's that Nicodemus. But if he was, in our day, it would be the equivalent of saying, oh, yeah, Bill and Melinda Gates, my parents. Barack and Michelle Obama, my parents. George and Laura Bush, yep, that's my uncle. <laughs> really? Yes, really, okay? That kind of awe factor, all right? So Nicodemus, Nicodemus is a rare Jew. He's wealthy, he's powerful, he's connected to all the right people, but he's trying to live a holy life. He's rare. Now, he's a member of what I like to call the God Squad. In every generation, there's a God Squad. And the God Squad are the people who talk for God, cheer for God, and point out all the ways that everybody else is messing up their lives, right? The God Squad is popular in every generation. Every generation has one. And in Jesus' generation, uh, Nicodemus would have been part of this God Squad. And, and all throughout the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus is rubbing up against the God Squad. They're, they're giving, you know, throwdowns to each other in the things that they say toward one another, all right? So, so this is Nicodemus. Now, some people will say that Nicodemus was uh, a sincere inquirer. In other words, he's somebody that showed up because he was really curious. Maybe, I don't see that in the text. I think Nicodemus was most likely sent by the God squad because Jesus was this upstart rabbi. He had just cleansed the temple in John's gospel. Nicodemus is coming in darkness, and in John, light and darkness are big metaphors, so that tells me that in John's mind, Nicodemus is spiritually dark, and so he's coming because they've sent him because he's so well-connected, and he's also living all the right ways. If anybody's gonna put this young rabbi, Jesus, in his place, it's Nicodemus. Nicodemus will shame Jesus for what he's done. So we have this interchange that plays out in John's gospel. Let's pick it up, verses three and following. Jesus replied, oh, I tell you the truth. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man get back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind, the wind blows wherever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. You must be born again. And then Nicodemus is like, well, can people really change? And so we get into this. New birth, new birth is not a facelift. New birth is not a set of New Year's resolutions. 
I am gonna be a more kind person in 2019. It's not, it's not that. New birth is not something you do. Only the spirit can bring about new birth. I'm not sure what Jesus means by water and spirit, but I know that he had a cousin named John the Baptist who was baptizing in the Jordan River, a baptism of repentance. And his cousin, John the Baptist said, oh, I'm baptizing with water, but someone is coming after me who will baptize with what? Spirit. So, so this, is in, this is in this chapter from John. Uh, Jesus is challenging Nicodemus's thinking because Nicodemus shows up confident in, I'm from the right family. Are you from the right family? I, I'm a child of Abraham, a true heir to this legacy within God's people. Are you, Jesus? And Jesus is basically saying in what, in what he's talking about this new birth, oh, Nicodemus, God's spirit is on the move. God's kingdom is open to anybody. No human family, no tribe, no organization, no system can keep up with it because the spirit, God's spirit is like the wind. Oh, you can hear it, but you can't analyze it. You can't control it. The wind goes wherever it wants. No one can control the Holy Spirit. Not you, Nicodemus, not any of us here, not me. No one can control the Spirit. Well, he, it, it keeps on, verse nine and following. How are these things possible? Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, you're a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe me if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man, the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Jesus, I think, knows that Nicodemus has been playing games with scripture. Nicodemus is standing in judgment of what scripture says and means instead of allowing scripture to read him. Uh, and Nicodemus comes at night. And, and so in the very next chapter, Jesus encounters another person, a Samaritan woman at the well. And in the interchange with her, she allows Jesus to read, him, read her life and so here you have Nicodemus, who's got all the right training, he's from the right family, he believes all the right things, he does all the right things, and he's Captain Clueless when it comes to Jesus. You have a Samaritan woman at the well who's not even trying to live her life right. And yet she's like, you're a prophet. <laughs> and then she keeps taking steps closer and closer to Jesus. What a contrast between these two people. Again not what you would expect, right? The religious guy should have it all figured out. The woman who's living, you know, wild living, she, you know, she should be clearly on the outs and not figure out anything. So, so Jesus makes this reference to Numbers chapter 21, Moses and the, the, the serpent, the bronze snake on the pole. If you've never read that chapter of the Bible, go home this afternoon and read Numbers 21, right? So what happened is Moses built a, a pole and, and a, put a bronze serpent and elevated it so that whoever directed their gaze on this pole with the serpent, they would be healed from the snakes that had bit them in the wilderness. And Jesus is saying, right, 
This is what we say in, in, in a series of unfortunate events, dramatic foreshadowing, right? We know someone else who's going to be lifted up and when you gaze upon him, you're healed. Who is that person? Jesus, right? So Jesus is making this connection for Nicodemus just as the bronze serpent was lifted up and everybody who gazed, so the son of man will be lifted up on a pole and everyone who gazes, right, will be healed. Not what anyone was expecting. No one in that setting, even though they had all the dramatic foreshadowing of the Old Testament, nobody was saying, when the Messiah comes, here's how it's gonna go down. The Romans are gonna crucify him. <laughs> That's it. Like, that's not what they were expecting. Again, Holy Spirit, surprise. So Nicodemus' story, though, doesn't end in chapter three. He shows up again at the end of John's gospel. If you're not familiar with it, allow me to read these verses from John chapter 19. Jesus has been crucified and he's died. And Joseph of Arimathea has asked to get the body. And verse 19, with Joseph came who? Nicodemus, surprise, <laughs> surprise. With Joseph came Nicodemus, the man who came to Jesus at night. He brought 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices and long sheets of linen cloth. They, the place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used, and so it was the day of preparation before Passover. Surprise. God's spirit does this all the time. This is, it's whew, the wind. You hear it and it's always blowing and it does, God does what God does. And I'm just telling you, it's gonna catch you off guard. It's just how it works. So let me ask a question in light of this passage from John's gospel, in light of John chapter three, in light of the fact that Jesus says, the spirit of God is like the wind. When was the last time you saw, undeniably, the Holy Spirit at work in or around you? When was the last time you saw or experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in or around you? I had one just this week. I went out with a buddy. Um, he's an executive in, in uh, Lexington. And we were just talking about mid, what it means to be middle-aged. And the conversation ended with me laying out the gospel to which he says, Max, if that's true, that would be incredible. And I'm not like, I know it's why it's called good news, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Wasn't expecting it. I just thought we were hanging out, right? It happens, I'm just telling you. So. The second question is, why would you tackle any day in your own power? If you've got access to the Holy Spirit of God, why would you go about any day angry and stressed and anxious and, and unable to forgive and all the other things that are part of that? Like, is that any way to live? Why go it on your own power, okay? Um, A.W. Tozer, uh, lays out what he calls the fourfold path for getting the spirit in you, all right? And I wanna share these today. He was a preacher in the 1950s, okay? Way back a long time ago when there was Dick and Jane and Spock, okay? So A.W. Tozer, A.W. Tozer, 
says this. He says, first, you got to present your body. Um, Romans 12, God cannot fill what God cannot have. And the Holy Spirit is a gentleman, and he will only come when he's been given permission, right? So give him permission. Pers- the, uh, God, here's my personality. Here's my will. Here are my dreams and thoughts. Here's everything. You're welcome. Here I am, body and all. Present your body. Um, second, ask. Uh, Psalm 2, 8, ask of me and I will give you. That's God's order, ask. So, right, ask and ye shall receive. Oh, you've heard that too. Jesus said that, <laughs> okay? So, and then, so you've done the stance where you've been like, you're welcome here, come in, and you know what happens? He's gonna come in, and as you're reading the word and as the Holy Spirit's in you, you're gonna get these nudges. You're gonna have the, I feel like I should talk, or I feel like I should give, or I feel, you know. Now, what a lot of Americans do is they just talk themselves out of those feelings, and they'll go, oh, well, I don't think that was God. That was probably, you know, indigestion, kind of like an Ebenezer Scrooge. There's more of gravy than of ghost of you, right? Okay, and that's kind of how we tend to roll. But, But the Holy Spirit's gonna try and guide and direct you, so obey, right? And it's a learning process, and you'll sometimes get it wrong, but that's what the community of faith is for, right? So present, ask, obey, and then lastly, understand that it's just have faith in it. God's made this promise. He'll do what he's promised. We receive salvation by faith, forgiveness by faith, and we're filled in the Holy Spirit by faith. I don't know about you, but I had the privilege and misfortune of reading all three volumes of Francis Asbury's letters and diaries uh, from when he was living back in the 1700s, okay? So, uh, and I did it because I, I did a massive research project on him. Francis Asbury was the only Englishman who stayed in America during the American Revolution and then later became a bishop in what is now the Methodist Church, okay? So it's all about God's spirit in his letters and diaries, right? So he'll say, I went to dismal seepage, South Carolina, and I had little freedom. In other words, he preached and Holy Spirit didn't do squat. And then he'll say, I showed up in, in nowhere, Pennsylvania, and the spirit seized upon me and moved, right? And people were convicted and stuff happened. Uh, he'll talk about places, uh, I love this. I, I preached and they were a dull, prayerless people. <laughs> Imagine that being your church. Yep, <laughs> Francis Asbury came here in 1798, the plaque's right up there by the pulpit. And it says, dull, prayerless people, that's us. (laughs) And then he'll say, the the people were attuned to the word. In other words, the spirit is moving, okay? Um, Let me tell you a couple of ways that this has played out in in the life of Generations Community Church, this this spirit and this unpredictability. When we launched Generations, uh, one of my mentors at the time was a man named Charles, and Charles told me two things that I absolutely hated back in 2003. He said, Max, first of all, based on your personality, um, 
Generations isn't going to be a explode big, you know, thing right out of, you know, that's not going to, that's not you. The really great stuff in your ministry is going to happen after you've been there 20 years. Thanks, Charles. Love you back. Okay. And then the second thing he said was, now, I'm just going to tell you that who finishes with you and who stays and committed to Jesus and who kind of drifts away, like you're going to be surprised. It's not going to be who you think. You're going to bet on the wrong horses, in other words. And I was like, oh, Charles, I know the people that are with me in starting this church. Like, you are, you are wrong, old man. Well, 14 years later, dadgummit, that turkey was right. <laughs> it was right. I, I was a poor horse better. And the other thing uh, this has played out in our church life is when we launched, we only did kid stuff. We didn't even have a worship service. And uh, a lot of churches today, they don't even do kid stuff. Uh, in fact, you can go 10, 15 miles north and find a $1.5 million kid stuff theater that sits empty uh, most of the time. Um, God is always doing new and different things. And one of the things we said when we started Generations is that we would never have any sacred cows. So let me ask a question. How many of you on a regular basis on iTunes or through your podcasts are listening to three-hour sermons that are read word for word from a manuscript? Anyone? Anyone? Can I just tell you, it was huge 200 years ago. Like, even members of the Supreme Court would just on a Sunday afternoon read these sermons. It was a thing, and yet it's not a thing anymore. God's always doing something new and unexpected and different. Our job is to be led by the Spirit and to be filled with the Spirit. And at times, I'm telling you, it's going to make you feel uncomfortable. It's going to be awkward, okay? Because it, it's not going to be what we expect, and it's not going to be something that's always rational. But God always does something better than what we could plan.